der Triathlon Show 355. everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview dr marco altini marco has a phd in data science and an msc in human movement sciences and high performance coaching he's the founder of uh, the popular tool hrv for training a heart rate variability app and in this interview we discussed the latest research that uh, marco was involved in conducting and the application of that research when it comes to heart rate variability uh, as well as a bunch of other practical things and questions that often comes up when we are talking about heart rate variability uh, so it will be an exciting uh, discussion with lots of practical applicability but before that big thanks to our sponsors roca when Roka got started in 2011, the challenge they set out to solve was to create the world's fastest wetsuit, and the result of that in its current iteration is the Maverick X2 wetsuit. Ten years later, in 2021, they set themselves a different challenge to take the extremely high standards that they take to all of their product development, take the key features of the Maverick X2 wetsuit, and create a very budget-friendly wetsuit that doesn't compromise those standards and incorporate as much as possible of the key features of their flagship model wetsuit in it. The result of that is the Maverick wetsuit, so Maverick only. At $275, US it's an entry-level option price-wise, but in terms of quality, it punches above its weight. It does not play in any of the entry-level leagues. It has top-quality engineering, design, and materials, classic ROCA features such as arms of technology, patented centerline buoyancy for better and snappier rotation, Yanomoto neoprene, quick-release ankles, and much, much more. Read more about the Maverick wetsuit on roca.com and visit roca.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your entire Roca order. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve technique, power, and swim training consistency. I recently caught up with the team at Senate and had a great discussion around what might, outside of improved consistency, be the number one thing that the Senate Swim Trainer can help you improve, and that is your catch. Practicing your catch when on dry land on the swim bench allows you to really work on that proprioception and motor patterns to maximize your catch also in the water. This is the number one use case reported by professional athletes using the Senate Swim Trainer. Uh, these athletes can basically swim however much they want, but they still find benefit in using the Senate for the specific purpose of improving their catch. Check out the Senate Swim Trainer and get a 20% discount on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And remember that you can get a full refund if you don't love it after two weeks. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Marco Altini. Welcome back to the Triathlon Show, Marco. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Good to be back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. It's been quite a while since last time. I'm sure a lot of listeners will have heard that uh, episode, but I will link to it in the show notes, of course. But lots have changed. There's lots of new information in the world of heart rate variability, uh, which we will talk about today. But before we do that, can you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a bit more about your background for those who are not familiar? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a mixed background, I would say, in technology and physiology. So I have degrees in computer science and engineering. 
PhD in data science, um, another master's in uh, sports science, human movement sciences, and high performance coaching. And I've been developing technology uh, to measure physiology, um, in particular, I would say resting physiology, heart rate, heart rate variability, but also during exercise um, with different methods uh, from uh, just using the phone sensors like the camera to measure these uh, parameters accurately without the need of sensors, as well as using uh, you know, commercially available sensors that you can pair to different apps and then process this data. So I run a small business called HRV for Training, which I started at this point almost 10 years ago. Um, that's uh, most of what I do now, uh, together with a bit of teaching here at VU Amsterdam um, and helping out also at Aura as an advisor, so another company that builds um, technology to measure physiology, so the, a ring that you can wear in the night, um, well, actually now, even in the day, with the latest one that allows you to measure also um, yeah, during daily activities. And that's a bit of what I've been doing uh, so far. Great. And, and in terms of your own sporting interests, uh, you are mostly a runner. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, I love to run. Uh, I cycle a bit as well, mostly because otherwise, if I run all the time, I get injured too quickly. So that's a good break. Um, at least when I'm not in the Netherlands, despite the abundance of bike lanes here, the weather is not the best in winter for cycling outdoors. Um, but yeah, I love running and um, I'm actually currently um, trying to get a bit more uncomfortable with the distance as I try to approach a 100k race. Um, and yeah, that's a bit of, I mean, I'm just a recreational runner, obviously no, not much talent here, but I do love the sport. And uh, so I try to do the best I can. Yeah, no, that's that's an exciting challenge, uh, the 100k distance. Um, well, let's give it, get into heart rate variability, HRV. So a lot of people already know what it is. It's fairly standard these days, but uh, can you give a brief summary of what it is and what the the benefits of using it can be? Yeah, so when we talk about heart rate variability, we talk about variations between heartbeat, technical heartbeats, technically speaking. So we measure these variations and we care about that because these variations are due to the activity of the autonomic nervous system in response to stress. So the heart would actually beat uh, at a constant frequency if we were just measuring it in response to its own pacemaker in the sinoatrial node, if we go at about 100 beats per minute. But it's not like that. As we know, when we measure our um, heart rate at rest, it's much lower than that. And that's due to the innervation of the autonomic nervous system, and in particular, of the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system when we are at rest, which means that heart rate is much lower and this increases also the variability between bits. Uh, and this activity of the autonomic nervous system changes in response to stress. That's why it becomes relevant. Basically, as we face stressors, there will be a response of the autonomic nervous system, which is reflected in the change in heart rhythm. So heart rhythm and heart rate variability just becomes a proxy of physiological stress and of our response to stress because we cannot measure directly the autonomic nervous system. So we just have this indirect measure of how the autonomic nervous system modulates heart rhythm through heart rate variability. And that's something that we can then try to use to understand how we are responding to different stressors, both acutely and chronically over time. So when we're faced with increased stress, the parasympathetic activity is it 
basically decreases and and that means that the variability between heartbeats also decreases or heart Correct. variability decreases exactly so we have a suppression and inhibition in parasympathetic activity and reduced variability so the heart rhythm becomes a little more constant typically heart rate changes a bit as well it's a bit higher in that case um, and they should be a bit lower and that's how we uh, typically have a um, response to stress that we can capture yeah and can you talk a little bit about how the application of this in terms of acute versus chronic um, measurement and and interpretation of the data in, in an acute and a chronic sense. Yeah, so when we think about acute stressors, well, we can think about them at different scales. But normally, we still try to consider stronger acute stressors, things like a hard session, a hard workout or things like getting sick, or uh, intercontinental travel. Anything that has an impact that lasts maybe um, 24 hours or two days, something like that. Uh, those kind of stressors typically have an effect that we can capture uh, when we measure physiology um, at the right time. I think that's one of the important things. Um, you know, We can measure physiology all the time, but there are moments in which we can better capture uh, resting physiology and that's typically first thing in the morning or during the night um, following some simple best practices and that's one of the key aspects because the, context the contextualized measurements that we can take throughout the day or even sporadically throughout the night uh, do not capture these uh, acute responses as well simply because anything affects the autonomic nervous system which is always changing if you think about the most ridiculous things, even if you just sneeze and then you happen to measure right after, or if you have coffee, or if you go up the stairs, all these uh, situations create also acute stressors in a way. But the time scale is different. It's just a scale of a few seconds or a few minutes. And that's the stressors that you don't really care about. You don't want to capture those. You want to capture the stronger ones that have a certain effect on your body that is more long-lasting because that's the type of stressor that will impact your ability to perform or your health. And that's why we care about those instead of the more transitory ones. Uh, so I think a couple of things there, um, while we measure is important, but also the type of stressors we try to isolate and understand uh, both acutely and then chronically, that would be in the much longer term. Um, it becomes a bit more challenging maybe in that case uh, to try to tease out which ones are the stressors that are having stronger impact? If we are talking about um, very long building, very a very long training block, for example, or um, psychological stressors, any other sort of thing that will have an effect on our physiology can be captured um, more slowly by changes in resting physiology, heart rate, or HRV, uh, with some differences that maybe we can discuss later. Um, but that's a bit how we try to look at these aspects together. Yeah, so so to illustrate with with an example in in that case with the long term stressors that you mentioned, you uh, you might see that your uh, your rolling average heart rate variability would would be would go down gradually go down over a period of of weeks or months uh, or uh, from from where it has been stable at some point, for example. But yeah, exactly. Of, yeah, I think it's of, always. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, sorry. Yeah, but but in the case of being sick, you you might see. Uh, uh, more sudden 
quite big incre- a decrease in, in heart rate variability. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, both uh, situations, you can see them, even with sickness, uh, we've seen with COVID and with long COVID, actually, uh, suppressions that are really long-lasting. So you have a change with acute phase, and then it remains suppressed for many weeks or months even, because then there are maybe other issues there uh, that are more chronic in nature. Uh, but again, yeah, the way you can spot those sometimes is um, by looking at the data only in a certain way, which is, as you mentioned, you know, the, your rolling average. So you're uh, basically how the baseline trend is changing over time, but also with respect to your historical data and what we call, for example, your normal values. So ways to um, build a model that represents your physiology and all that changes over time in the longer term, which I think is important because physiology will change even if nothing happens. Just because, for example, um, now it's winter and it's different than summer and resting physiology changes also because there is seasonality. So those are some of the things that we can um, interpret better if we use simple methods that allow you to uh, quantify what is the normal range or the baseline physiology of an individual and see how the recent trend or the more longer term trend decouples from that normal range so that you can spot um, periods of abnormalities basically in the physiology and that's all that it is because abnormalities in physiology typically are uh, some sort of negative responses to the various stressors that we face. Yeah, and and if some listeners are confused with all these normal values and baseline and things, it's it's not that difficult. Uh, many apps, including HRV for training, can can look at that automatically if you're measuring your HRV. So it's not you you don't need to get your Excel spreadsheets out for for that really. Uh, Definitely. Um, you you talked about when to measure and the timing of it with morning measurements and overnight measurements and it's actually we can go into that now i think before we go into the discussing your study your recent study uh morning measurements usually with hrv for training for example that's what i use i measure for one minute in the morning with the phone's camera but then there are wearables as you said the aura ring and others where you can wear them and they measure throughout the night and and day potentially can you discuss the differences or the pros and cons of different methods and timing of measurement yeah for sure so i think uh this is important because as we have a lot more sensors out there we need to understand a bit better um what are the differences between the methods and also which sensors provide actually data that is reliable for this purpose and which sensors provide data is a lot more noisier and more problematic to use or sometimes even not usable simply because it is sampled at the wrong time and there is a distinction there between um, a sensor that is accurate, uh, data that is accurate, and data that is meaningful. Because you can use a sensor that is accurate, but still provides data that is not meaningful, because simply it's sampled at the wrong time. And an example I always make is the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch is a device that is accurate, because it can measure HRV as good as an ECG. So reference systems with, uh, you know, uh, the electrodes and everything, it would give you the same data. But then this uh, sensor, if you use it and just wear it throughout the night, it will give you some sporadic measurements. So maybe a few data points every few hours. And that becomes uh, not useful and actually very noisy because during the night, we have different components that impact HRV. 
you know, in, I've heard a lot from people that prefer to use the sensors during the night, that that is the best because you're unconscious. So you cannot influence the measurement. But the fact is that while you are unconscious, your autonomic nervous system is still very active, especially in certain phases like in REM sleep. There is huge activity. It's like basically the same as when you're awake, when you're dreaming and everything. So in those situations, if your sensor samples while you are in REM sleep, and that could be at any given time because sleep stages alternate and anything can happen at any hour, then you're basically capturing a data point that is really not representative of your baseline physiology. And that's why this becomes a bit problematic. Also, if it is a different at a different hour, your physiology changes throughout the night due to the circadian rhythm. So normally your resting heart rate goes a bit down throughout the night, your HRV goes a bit up. So if you measure once at 2 a.m. and once at 5 a.m., that is also going to be a problem because um, you're basically introducing variability due to the time of the measurement or to the sleep stage uh, or variability that you don't have if you measure in the morning because in that case, it's more or less the same time and you are in the same state because you are awake. So there are uh, important considerations to make, but to not to make this too complex, actually the solution to all of these issues, so to speak, of night data is very simple which is to average out all the data of the night. Because in that case, the circadian component and the sleep stages will have the same impact throughout different days. So the average of the night becomes a good marker of resting physiology. And there are some sensors that give you that. Uh, one is the ordering, but I read recently also a paper uh, that was comparing the Polar Vantage, I think, the one of the latest watches they have um, that uses four hours, I think, of night. Uh, to give you an average of these four hours. Yeah, I think that's also a reliable method. As long as you collect four or five hours up to the entire night, then you can get an average that is uh, a reliable estimate of resting physiology, both for heart rate and HRV. And very recently, just a couple of weeks ago, there was this paper published um, that actually compared uh, morning measurements and night data so that we don't have just some anecdotal evidence, but there is someone that looked a bit more specifically at how they relate, and they were actually uh, extremely highly correlated. So if you do this according to best practices, which means either you use the full night or quite a few hours instead of just a few segments, or in the morning, you take your measurement as soon as you wake up, so before you face other stressors, and you use obviously validated systems that can measure accurately, then these methods are very similar. So they should provide you the same insights uh, over time. If you measure longitudinally, the absolute values can be different because it's a different uh, moment of the night or of the day, obviously. So there can be differences there. You cannot use one one day and one the other day. But what we care about is always how the data changes relatively over time. And that's something that you can capture equally well with both of them. That's why we recommend always simply to use whatever you prefer based on costs, your preference for wearing a sensor or not, your ability to remember to take that morning measurement. For some people, it's just not going to happen. So uh, I think there are some trade-offs there, but both of them can be used reliably for the same purpose. Yeah, that's a great uh, great summary. And I like the description of there is there are sensors that are accurate, but data doesn't necessarily have to be accurate. One thing that I always think of uh, in a similar vein is 
composite scores like a different not not to single anybody out but different readiness scores and 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 that sort of thing you might have all the accurate data that goes into that sensor but you essentially have a in many cases a black box where you don't know what they do with your hrv and your sleep and and what have you and and then they throw all the data into the black box and give you a score that comes out and how how are we supposed to know if that's accurate very few of these things have been validated so that's why i would recommend using the uh, separate markers for separate things so you use hrv when you want to look at your autonomic nervous system you use sleep when you want to look at your sleep and so on yeah exactly i cannot agree more i think uh, we have more and more of this all sort of apps and wearables now have recovery or readiness score and these kind of things and i think there um it's problematic from many points of view. Uh, the first one is just that it mixes behavior and physiology. So if you are sleeping less or if you are exercising more, the model will somewhat penalize you because those are things that are supposed to require more recovery. But then maybe your physiology does not reflect that. Your physiology is perfectly fine and you did not uh, take any hit because of that change in behavior and that you get a lower score. And you don't know you don't know really if it is your physiology that is impaired or if it is your behavior that has changed. Um, and sometimes you know we have this false impression that since there is all this data aggregated, it's more informative, but you actually have less information than what you would have by looking at the separate sources, as you mentioned, looking at sleep, exercise, uh, your resting physiology and your HRV. So you look at this separately and you can learn what happened. But when you put them together, then it becomes very difficult uh, to actually figure out what caused the change. Um, And that's why I think it's much better to just look at the physiology in these cases. Yeah. And uh, one more question when it comes to the actual measurement. So, uh, well, I just mentioned using the camera on the phone. And uh, well, in the HRV for Training app, that is a scientifically validated method. You can also use it with a device like the Aura Ring, or you can use a, ch- a normal heart rate chest strap or things like that. Can you discuss these different methods of measuring and, and the pros and cons of each? Yeah, for sure. So um, let's say that the original, in the older days, way to try to measure these kind of parameters was always via chest straps, and that's still an option. Um, chest straps typically are accurate Um, polar straps I would say are the ones that we recommend but also some of the uh, recent Garmin ones work very well so the Garmin Dual and all the ones that have Bluetooth typically and relatively recent work quite well between these two brands Um, the strap is uh, something that normally is very accurate if you take care of it well meaning that you know it is needs to be a bit humid in the morning otherwise you don't have good contact with the skin then of course you can also generate uh, inaccurate data um, i would say maybe it's easier to use for longer measurements so if you have to take a measurement that is three or five minutes then maybe it's a good solution otherwise um, if you use the camera of the phone uh, typically we recommend using shorter measurements for the features that we use to compute this marker of parasympathetic activity which in the app we call either HRV or RMSSD, which is something that we use to derive what we call HRV, but it's the same thing, basically. Um, This marker uh, is 
something that has been shown that you can compute in just 60 seconds and it's equivalent to what you would get with five minutes. So I use, you know, also myself 60 seconds for the measurement. Um, and I think that's the easiest to do for most people. In that case, if you use the camera of the phone, it's also easy while maybe staying um, with the phone camera for five minutes becomes a bit impractical. I think one of the trade-offs there with optical methods is that movement needs to be avoided completely. That's why these sensors can only work in the night, typically when you sleep or when you take a short measurement. You cannot move and get high-quality data with any optical measurement for heart rate variability. They are pretty bad also for heart rate. Some work decently these days for heart rate. Um, some polar straps, for example. But then um, these sensors cannot really be used for HRV to get that stable signal when you exercise. They do a lot of averaging, and it's not the same as what you need to do for resting measurements. Um, so normally, those are a bit the trade-offs. There is, I think, just one sensor still, the Scosh Rhythm 24, that you can use both for resting measurements and for exercise. But that's because it has different modalities. So there is one mode where you put it in HRV mode, and you cannot absolutely move. Like Even if you just contract your muscles, it will generate a lot of artifacts because optical data is really sensitive to any sort of movement or disruption in the signal. It's basically just looking at blood volume changes in your capillaries, so on your arm. So anything that messes with that will create noise in the data. Um, but if you are still, which is typically easy to do, first thing in the morning for a minute, then these methods can, can work very well as long as they've been validated. Yeah. And uh, a practical question, one more of those. Do, do you sit up in bed when you do that first thing in the morning or do you still remain laying down? Yeah, that's a good question. I had so many conversations with, about uh, this with uh, Andrew Flett, who is a great expert in all of these areas. And uh, I know that he stands up uh, because um, he says that when you stand up, basically you cause a bit of a stress uh, response on the body, right? So if you measure within a minute from that, you might get a slightly better insight into your physiology that day because you have a certain response to the stressor that you're analyzing and not just your physiology at complete rest. So I started playing around with this a bit more. So I measure myself always lying down, but now I measure also sitting. And I have, uh, I don't know, six months of data of the two and they very much agree in my case. So this is not a definitive answer because it's just me, right? So you need to look at more people as usual and these kind of things over long periods of time. But for me, it captured very similarly both acute and chronic stressors over time with differences. So the day-to-day -day variability is higher uh, when I'm sitting, which I found uh, a bit surprising. But maybe this explains also what Andrew mentioned. So you trigger stressor and then you have a broader range as that's your body's response to that stressor when you measure um, instead of when you lie down. I think there is one good case for not lying down for athletes that have a very low heart rate. Maybe that's um, something to consider just because it could be that there is a period in which um, you are in a situation of parasympathetic saturation, which I would think is quite rare. Uh, but at the same time, you never know. That would mean that your parasympathetic activity is actually high. But HRV does not reflect it well. So um, that is something that can happen if your heart rate is, again, maybe in the low 30s and you train a lot. 
And over a period of time, you notice that you're feeling great. You're training a lot. Your heart rate still is low. It's not increased or maybe it's even reducing. And still your HRV is resulting suppressed. That could be this um, saturation issue. And that could be a reason for sitting or standing uh, for certain athletes. But otherwise, in general, um, lying down, I think, is fine in 99.99% of the cases. Also, because we always have to consider trade-offs there. So if you lie down, it's easier not to mess it up. While if you do other things, um, then maybe you are better off in that corner case, but then you mess up the data three days out of five because um, when you stand up, then, I don't know, you're moving or you're measuring too soon after standing up. You don't wait for your physiology to restabilize because... 30 seconds in the morning feels like five hours when you're just waiting. So everything is a bit rushed. Um, and I think we always need to consider these things. That's why normally I still recommend uh, lying down as the easiest way to capture high quality data. Got it. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to talk about the study that you recently published together with uh, Dan Plus. And it's called, I'm just going to open it up so I can get uh, get the name of it right. What is behind changes in resting heart rate and heart rate variability, a large-scale analysis of longitudinal measurements acquired in free living? So can you just discuss a little bit what what did you do there? And, and then we can go into the results and the applications. Yeah, yeah. So in this work, um, we looked at two things mainly. Um, one is at the population level. So over a large set of people, I think almost 30,000 people, we looked at uh, how their heart rate and heart rate variability changes with respect to personal characteristics like sex or uh, uh, BMI or uh, physical activity level and age. So to better understand what are the factors behind differences between people, in resting physiology and what of these factors would be different for heart rate and for HRV. And then the second part of the paper, we looked uh, within individuals. So instead of looking at differences uh, between people, we looked for one person and for that person, for each of these people, actually, we had on average almost a year of data. So we looked at the relation between uh, different stressors like uh, alcohol intake, sickness, training of different intensities, and the menstrual cycle, and how these stressors impact resting physiology, and again, both heart rate and HRV, and what are the differences between these two. So we tried to figure out a bit better what are basically the relationships at the population level and against the stressors within individuals, um, and the differences in resting heart rate and in HRV uh, with respect to all of these factors uh, so that we can maybe inform a bit better how the data can be used, both as a screening tool at the population level and as a tool to manage stress at the individual level. Yeah, no, great great summary. And, and as you said, almost 30,000 people with a year's data of each. That's uh, You mentioned it in the, in, in the study there, but some... A very high number of, of measurements, obviously. Yeah, so this is I not... think uh, about 9 million or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So ob obviously this is acquired 
in people's daily lives at home uh, from your the data that that you have where, where people are using the app it's not people haven't come into the lab to do these things yes exactly yeah we talked about the all of the measurements that you had and acquired in um in the real life of, of people in the day-to-day life so and you were saying that that is a very powerful thing about your study so can you go on and, and elaborate on on that yeah yeah for sure you know um in uh I would say in the past 50 years, we have had all sorts of studies uh, looking at HRV data collected in the lab. And it's always, um, I don't know, maybe a bit difficult to uh, think that that's a realistic setting when, you know, you ask people to come to the lab and uh, maybe not eat or wait two hours before they do anything and not exercise the day before. And then you make them sit on a, or lie down on a, on a bed and then wire them up and then measure the physiology for like 30 minutes and that's supposed to be a representative um, sample of the resting physiology so i think we now luckily thanks to all the technology that has been developed moved away from that and actually we're able to collect data um, in real life settings there are other limitations of course the physiology is collected in real life in realistic situations then the annotations, though, the reference points, the stressors, uh, they are still self-reported, right? So uh, that is something that we always need to deal with. Uh, but I think that given the scale of the study, then we can always deal better also with, uh, let's say, some level of noise in our training. Our trainings are reported or sickness is reported or anything like that, because still, when you have so much data, we can um, better analyze um, the different responses, even uh, in cases in which they are not perfect. Yeah. So, so the results then, if we start with the, uh, the factors at an at an individual demographic level, what did you find? All right. So, when we look at the population level, uh, we f- found some of the obvious uh, relationships. I would say uh, that we expected to see, for example, uh, slightly higher resting heart rate in women with respect to men, or uh, uh, what we would call um, suboptimal resting physiology, meaning a lower um, HRV and higher heart rate for people that have a BMI um, that is outside of the normal category. So here we just look at the typical clinical definitions. Um, so for people that have a normal BMI, we saw the highest HRV and lowest resting heart rate at the population level. And as we go far away from the normal category, so both underweight or overweight and obese, then we see uh, a less uh, ideal profile. So heart rate increases, HRV reduces. Um, looking at age, some of the relationships there, I think, uh, were a bit more interesting. For example, we saw no change in uh, resting heart rate. And this is not to say that it is necessarily the same uh, in the, over the entire population, right? We always consider a very specific type of person, which is the person that is using this tool that is maybe engaged a bit more with their health or with exercise. So that's always something to consider. Uh, but we saw stable heart rate over decades from people that are 20 years old to people that are 60 years old, uh, while the typical HRV reduction, uh, that is also well documented in literature, so with um, HRV being much higher uh, in your 20s with respect to your 60s, in which things reduce quite a bit. Um, And there, 
we started breaking down these relationships by physical activity level. So I think that's when things get a bit more interesting. So we look, for example, at um, what is the relationship between physical activity level and heart rate. And if we look at that, we have the relationship that also we expect with increased physical activity level associated to lower heart rate. And when we look at that across uh, different age groups, so decades of life, interestingly, we see that this relationship remains exactly the same. So people that exercise more in their 20s or in their 60s, they actually have the exact same resting heart rate. Basically, it is just the lowest of the group, and it is even the same uh, that you had when you were 20. So the level of physical activity is reflected very well in resting heart rate, and that is independent of age. Uh, at the same time, we cannot see that of HRV. So um, for HRV, the relationship with physical activity level is weaker. And I think uh, that's something maybe we discussed course other times. Um, I would not use in general HRV as a marker of fitness or of the level of any athlete like I've seen elite athletes with low HRV. And you know, that is just something that sometimes is due to genetics and other factors. So the link with fitness is much weaker. And especially when we look at age groups, uh, when you're very young, there is a stronger link. So very young and very fit people tend to have a higher HRV uh, than young and unfit people. But as we go um, and look through other age groups, so older people, this relationship is almost completely lost. And HRV is also, also lower, uh, you know, when you are maybe in your 50s or 60s. But then the link with physical activity remains very weak or almost non-existent, while it is very strong for heart rate. So I think that heart rate is just, heart rate is just a better marker of uh, cardiorespiratory fitness in general. Um, that is why also it is used in some simple models to predict things like cardiorespiratory fitness at the population level or to estimate it, while HRV is not a good marker in that context. It's... Uh, it's not something that we can really rely on. Um, and something that we learn from all of this is also that for each of these categories or subgroups, uh, even if we break it down in many different ways by age and BMI and physical activity level and so on, still the distribution of values in a specific group is very broad. And that means that still these uh, variables explain very little of the difference between people. So it's not that if you know all of these things, you can guess what's HRV of a person. Still, it could be anywhere over an enormous range. So that tells us that there are many other factors that are simply behind these differences that are not uh, these factors that we could uh, measure so, or, or simply had reported. So that's uh, something that we need to consider also when we maybe think of interventions or if we think of objectives. Uh, people maybe start tracking these parameters because they think they want to change them. They want to have higher HRV, for example. And I think that if um, you are already healthy and you take care of your diet, of your sleep, and you exercise uh, regularly, then maybe there are reasons like genetics behind having a, cert a certain HRV that is simply very hard or not possible to change. 
And that does not mean that it's not useful to use it uh, because we talk about that later when we got the second part of the paper and the stressors. But it's not an overall marker um, that you can optimize itself to get it better, but it's something that you use in the process of maintaining your health or your performance or to bring in those to a better state, but not the HRV itself, which might just be something that uh, in terms of your baseline does not change that much um, over periods of time, uh, even in response uh, to exercise of other or other things. And again, always in the context of a certain type of person that is healthy and you know is already checking all of those boxes, and then maybe that's your baseline uh, and it's not going to change that much uh, in the long term, despite capturing stressors. Um, while you might better change your resting heart rate just by exercising more typically, uh, which might not be the case for your listeners or people that already exercise uh, a lot, right? Then maybe those parameters are all more useful in the context of tracking stress more than tracking um, other long-term changes um, in BMI or physical activity level or lifestyle because those are still, uh, yeah, pretty um, constant i would say maybe at times over over in, in life yeah yeah absolutely uh, it's that's a really great point and, and it's really important to 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 make that very clear that there are no benchmarks oral benchmarks that you shouldn't have an hrv of uh, xyz that that's not how it works but it's based on you can look at your trends but it doesn't mean that you should that you will be able to increase it but as you say maybe it's all about just seeing when you are experiencing certain stressors or some type of stressor and and being able to um take uh take appropriate action action to that so um yeah you shouldn't you shouldn't use the tool for what it's not meant to be used for and can't be used for put simply yeah yeah exactly i think there's still a lot of confusion there at the same time uh you know for people that maybe don't have that type of lifestyle still it can be something useful to look at uh, you know as you decide um i don't know to pick up exercise or something that simple or change your diet and then maybe it can be a marker that reflects some of the positive change but at the same time um yeah i think the the context always matters are we talking about an intervention on someone that needs that because their lifestyle is unhealthy or are we talking about an athlete um in the second case most likely the hrv that's what it is and then we use it to manage stresses not to change it over time yeah and uh, what about those stressors then that influence uh, HRV that you that you talked about? Can you repeat which they were and then what, what were the results that you find found? Yeah, so we looked at um, training of different intensities. We grouped them first in low intensity and high intensity. And then we had also a breakdown into four categories, which were rest, uh, low intensity, average, and high intensity. And these are all self-reported. So... Uh, it depends on how people uh, report their workouts, but the results uh, we found were uh, very consistent with what you would expect with uh, increasing uh, change in response to increasing intensity. So um, I think still uh, quite meaningful in terms of what we can capture there. And then we had um, sickness, alcohol intake, and the menstrual cycle. 
So those are all stressors that have a certain impact on your physiology. And what we could see um, are a couple of things. Um, some also there quite unexpected, I would say, uh, looking at, for example, the response to training intensity. We could see as expected that um, we had a stronger percentage change in HRV with respect to resting heart rate. That means simply that HRV is a bit more sensitive than heart rate um, to this type of uh, stressors, which is the whole point of using it in general. It's just that the changes in heart rate typically are so small that it's difficult to determine if the change is just part of the day-to-day changes in physiology or if it is actually a meaningful change in response to the stressor. So when the change is so small that remains within the normal day-to-day variability, then it's uh, it's not very actionable. While for HRV, this change is larger, so we can better capture the type of response is more sensitive to the stressor. So we are uh, more confident when we see a suppression that there was a certain type of stressor. Um, the interesting bit there also, when we look at the um, split by age group, is that for each age group, HRV remained uh, as sensitive to the training stressor. That means that if you are 20 years old or 60 years old, still we reported the same reduction in HRV in percentage uh, with respect to a person's baseline in response to high-intensity training, for example. While when we look at resting heart rate, uh, this change that is already a lot smaller for resting heart rate was also getting smaller and smaller over decades of life, meaning that when you're in your 50s, the change in heart rate is so small that you basically cannot make anything out of it because it's, again, smaller than day-to-day variability. This was, I think, somewhat surprising because we know that heart rate variability reduces with age. So with lower values, you would expect maybe that also the day-to-day variability in response to stress is a bit smaller. But instead, that was captured well. So I think that simply tells us that these parameters are able to capture stressors well, um, at least in the context of training um, at any age. So that's, um, I would say, good in the sense of being able to use these tools to guide training um, Yeah, for anyone. Um, that's something I don't think we were aware of before because typically these studies are done always on a younger population. So that's um, that's some useful information. Then when it comes to the other stressors, uh, I would group sickness and alcohol as something that were by far the strongest uh, stressors uh, in terms of the percentage change in both heart rate and HRV in a way that um, the change would be maybe four or five times larger for alcohol and sickness with respect to training. And I think that's um, very important to understand because it's completely useless in a way to rely on this technology if we do not address our lifestyle first. Because if we are drinking, uh, you know, four times per week, then our HRV is not going to reflect how we are responding to training. It's just going to respond uh, and to show how we are responding to the alcohol intake, basically. So those kind of things, I think, need to uh, be considered when we use these tools because it's really a very generic marker of stress that is absolutely not specific to training. Um, and the changes in response to some stressors are very large. And sickness, hopefully, we don't see that too often. But, uh, you know, for other things, again, like alcohol intake, that 
can be often. So um, in that case, it would impact the data uh, quite a bit. So that's something that we need to consider. We had also the menstrual cycle in there, and there also we replicated uh, results that we had seen earlier in smaller studies, which means that during the second phase of the cycle, the luteal phase, we have a bit of a change, which is a suppression in HRV and uh, an increase in heart rate. Those changes are also uh, relatively small with respect to sickness and alcohol, and more comparable to the tra- to the changes we have in response to training. It still matters because uh, we will have, in some cases, these oscillations in uh, athletes that have a regular cycle, which means that uh, having the information um, allows us to understand that the change is due uh, to hormonal changes or anything else happening with the cycle and not to, for example, other stressors or a response to training. So that's just useful context, I think. There is no... Um, I would say, agreement yet on guidelines on how to potentially um, tune training in these different phases, but at the same time, being aware that the physiological change as is due uh, to the phase of the cycle, I think can allow that, um, us to better interpret the data and not read uh, too much into it. Uh, for example, misinterpreting as uh, the change as a change due to any other stress. So those are some of the things. Um, but yeah, I would say in principle, the fact that we need to think holistically about health and training, and that is what HRV reflects uh, due to how it is capturing any stressor. At the same time, um, maybe we, uh, on the difference between heart rate and HRV, apart from the fact that HRV is more sensitive, we have that also HRV is a bit less specific. Uh, so any stressor will sink it. And often we don't really know uh, what is the cause. For heart rate, the change uh, that is always so small, unless you have very strong stressors. So in the case of alcohol and sickness, the change is dramatic also in heart rate. So I think we can always use heart rate as a more maybe specific marker uh, of certain conditions uh, that are typically maybe more associated to changes in health and sickness again. So things that are maybe a bit more alarming are reflected also in heart rate, while in HRV we can better see changes that are maybe a bit more subtle and not captured by heart rate, things like, again, training, um, where we can try to make small adjustments here and there based on these physiological responses, and that would not be captured very well in just resting heart rate. Mm, yeah no that's uh, great thank you for all for all the detail there i definitely have some follow-ups on that one thing that i wanted to mention there with the with the heart rate or another example of a stressor that uh, every now and then uh, i as i suspect many others experience is a bad night of sleep maybe a, a very short night of sleep for one reason or another and and i tend to see that that get a similar response to being sick or something with a with a pretty big change also in resting heart rate and of course in heart rate variability so yeah uh, yeah, yeah th- that's not something that you mentioned m- measured in the study of course but but at least for me my anecdotal data is that a bad night of sleep is one of those strong stressors but on the other hand as you say training for me even an intense day of training generally doesn't cause 
any large change in in either one of those uh, of heart rate or heart rate variability yeah, even if yeah. It's an intensity. i think a lot depends on uh, basically what's your baseline in everything like your baseline training level is that you're very well trained so you should not see these suppressions as a matter of fact like the best you can uh, hope for for when everything is going well and you're training well and it does not mean that you're not training hard you're training high volume high intensity and still you don't want to see these suppressions because that means that it's basically a negative response it means mm-hmm. that you did not bounce back quickly from that stressor why as a well-trained athlete that also knows how to train uh, you want to bounce back quickly and typically you don't want to see any of those suppressions so i think uh, that while we analyze the acute response and we see that the training is captured that way still the training process and the fact that you know we periodize or plan training in a way um, that allows for recovery and you know where the hard sessions are sessions that we are supposed to be able to manage because that's the right intensity for us in that moment um, that should be reflected with a positive response. Um, normally, after a hard session, when I wake up and see that your data is normal, uh, and that would be good. Uh, it would mean it would be a good sign. Absolutely, does not mean that you did not train hard enough because some people are still confused about these things. They think they should see a negative response, but that is not really the case. Uh, in an ideal world, you are always within your normal range, but then you know. Things happen, stress happens, and sickness happens, and those sort of things happen. And that's when you can then use the data to try to get things back to normal. Yeah. So a follow-up on sickness, and uh, this is not necessarily uh, specific to the study, but just asking you for anecdotal uh, wisdom. Uh, when... When when you're sick and and you see you you see this strong reaction in HRV and and heart rate, is that then something? Uh, do, can you use? Can you give some advice for how to get back into training when you're starting to get healthy? Like, do do, do you have an idea of do the p- person typically start to feel healthy before they they actually see those uh, returns in physiological? Uh, measures or is it the other way around should should you maybe wait an extra day until your you see that your hrv is getting back towards normal or do you have any any thoughts on that yeah i think um it's uh difficult because every every sickness is different right and every person is different uh i think also in the initial phase uh when you are getting sick it can be helpful at times uh you might have already a change in physiology before uh, you realize that you're not feeling so well. You can see that in the morning data, sometimes also in the exercise data, if you notice that, you know, your heart rate maybe is a bit higher at the intensity that you normally can hold it a bit lower, things like that. In terms of um, the sickness fading fading out, I would say, um, yeah, I don't think we have uh, any... Uh, yeah, very concrete evidence of the fact that your symptoms would be um, fading out before or after the data shows any changes. I think that must be also individual um, and also very difficult to track. Uh, even with Aura and with other companies that have been doing this work during COVID, um, t- trying to see if you could see changes um, with respect to the moment of the infection. It's so difficult even just to find these reference points because, uh, you know, you can have maybe 10, 15 different types of symptoms. 
Uh, and then you can have many of these even when you're healthy <laughs> sometimes. Um, so you need to determine, okay, what is uh, the moment in which you start uh, not feeling well? Uh, is it when you have two or three symptoms together, for example? So even just defining these type of things, I think make it, make it a bit difficult to uh, analyze systematically. But I think that what the data is showing you is simply the state of your body in that case. Um, especially if you were sick for a couple of days, you know, the suppression has been probably in HRV for a couple of days and heart rate has been elevated for that time. So using the data for guidance in that case, it can be helpful because you can see very easily when you're approaching your pre-sickness values. So you can see there uh, when basically for your body from this point of view, everything is back to normal and that is something that you can then couple with your training to basically decide when it's time to pick things things up again. Uh, Or if you were training uh, because maybe it wasn't too debilitating and you were just doing something easy, that maybe when everything is renormalized, you know that you can uh, do a little more. Yeah, those are great points. And actually, come come to think of it, if for example, one thing that I've found when if I've been sick for a bit longer, like a week or something, it's you can't you can't really tell even if if your heart rate variability is suppressed because of the sickness anymore when you're when you feel healthy and you're back to training, or if it's because you detrained because you definitely have time to detrain a bit and then what i found is find is that then when you, when you get back into training as you say it goes back up to your normal levels but the question then is is that because you regain your fitness uh, even if it's just something as simple as blood plasma volume which uh, which i think has an impact on heart rate variability and yep. reduces and gets and re and you regain it quickly so it could be one of those quick adaptations that is fitness related rather than health related even yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything is interconnected in a way that sometimes makes it difficult to discriminate what causes any changes. Sometimes people take periods of rest and then their HRV goes down and then they pick up aerobic training and it goes up. Uh, that's just because it's also associated to how you are responding to that and not simply to not doing anything, basically. Yeah. And uh, alcohol, uh, this is something I've seen some interesting discussions on Twitter uh, about this as well. Uh, so in the study, you only uh, you only compared any alcohol consumption. Is that right? You didn't quantify, you know, how much was consumed. So, but, it, but, that's, but that's something that I've seen discussed. So can you talk a little bit more about that, again, maybe from a more anecdotal side. Uh, yeah, so of, we use yeah. the, um, in the app, we have uh, three categories which are not very scientific. They are no alcohol, a little, or too much. So it's very, again, subjective how to decide to log that. And in the study, we included the extremes. So no alcohol or too much. We did not include mm-hmm. the a little uh, category. And I think... Uh, from also looking at individual data um, of people that have shared it or anecdotally, um, normally in terms of resting physiology at least, and this does not mean that there aren't other effects, but in terms of resting physiology, heart rate and HRV, if you look at having one uh, unit or one drink, um, that would be a glass of wine or maybe a small beer, something like that, uh, normally there is no change in physiology. So that does not mean again that maybe there are no other changes in sleep or any other thing 
sorry again, listeners. We we have some problems with the podcasting software today. Um, yeah, Marco, you were saying that uh, one serving of alcohol use usually doesn't seem to have an impact on the resting physiology, uh, at least anecdotally. Uh, and but in your study, as you say, you compared the more high consumption category of what was a subjective rating of too much versus no alcohol. So I, I guess what is the the consensus is there a consensus on on alcohol and uh, and the effect size if you will or yeah i don't know i think uh, i think it's still up for debate especially when you look at the small quantities uh, here and there um from the data again it looks like the changes are minimal or no changes for uh, for those amounts uh but again we are talking about changes in resting physiology there are other issues uh, you know associate, associated also to alcohol intake um, for me personally for example uh, you know last summer I had some episodes of arrhythmia and that it was the trigger for me not to drink anymore even small quantities because regardless of the no change in physiology it is quite well established that uh, alcohol is um, basically increasing your risk factor for arrhythmias. So um, if you already have some issues, it's probably the first thing you should drop uh, is not to drink. Um, so yeah, multiple aspects that do affect also in a way uh, heart rhythm because then if you get an arrhythmia, you might not even be able to measure your HRV anymore because there is too much disruptions uh, in heart rhythm, uh, which even happened to me over the last summer. Uh, which was ironic in a way, <laughs> but fortunately then things uh, sort of renormalized. But yeah, that's one of the reasons for me not to drink, uh, regardless of the effect on resting physiology. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a good example. And I guess my personal anecdote is that I've seen the same as your other users that have reported that with one serving you don't really see a change in resting physiology but i think all if i have two glasses of wine for example i i do see that i can't really remember at the moment but but i think that's the case one thing that i like about um using hrv for training when after the actual measurement in the morning you're prompted to answer these questions what was your training like what was your alcohol intake like did you travel and so on is that when you then see your your little timeline, your calendar, you see this. You have these icons, so you can see that okay, I had uh, alcohol that day, or I had intense training that day, and and it does make you a bit accountable. When like if, if you start to see several of those alcohol icons, it, you you start to think about your uh, your behaviors. So so I like that just from a behavior change perspective as well, uh, the way yeah. it's designed. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that a lot, and uh, I think uh, you know when you look at it, uh, because we always underestimate maybe sometimes the frequency of our drinks, uh, and when you look at it, then uh, yeah, sometimes you think about it a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so I think that other than that, uh, from the study, what conclusions or practical applications would you uh, would you draw? Is there anything that that stands out? I would say that for um, athletes or people, you know, that fit the profile of uh, the user of these systems, um, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, the fact that um, it might be not realistic to aim for a change in HRV. So uh, something that maybe we sh- people should not obsess over, which I still see quite a bit online. Um, and 
the best way to make use of the data is to use it to manage stress and to capture responses to stressors. And we showed that it captures very well different stressors better than heart rate. At the same time, it's very non-specific. So when you have a drop, it could be any sort of thing. And uh, if you do have an increase in resting heart rate, then most likely that is a stronger stressor, something to be more cautious about. about. Uh, it could be sickness, it could be anything like that. Um, while when it comes to uh, a suppression in HRV, uh, typically it could be any stressor. And that's what makes it powerful because we can see the relationship with many different things. But at the same time, uh, again, just less specific to something um, even like sickness or, uh, or anything else that will cause still suppression similar to many other things. Yeah, perfect. And moving on to a different topic, and uh, well, this will be the last big topic for today, HRV-guided training. You mentioned that term earlier. Can you first define what that is and and then what is the current status of that there have been we talked about that last time you were on but there have been quite a number of new studies i think since then yeah so, so can you explain yeah. that so hre guided training simply means that you use the data to somehow adjust uh, your training and that means uh, maybe to make some changes in the planning um, reduce the intensity of the session or maybe even do an extra session depending on the protocol. Um, so using the data uh, for day-to-day guidance and to make changes with respect to whatever you had otherwise planned. So that's a bit what we include under the term. Yeah. And in the research studies, in the protocols, um, so the example would be if you're if you reach a certain threshold of low suppressed hrv for example you would go from high intensity if that was planned to easy or even a rest day perhaps depending on the magnitude uh, yeah, you said so you that, said that have have there, have there been some studies where you said that they have uh, uh, prescribed additional sessions if you have particularly high hrv or normal yeah yeah i think so i think there was another recent study where the hrv guided group eventually did uh, more uh, intense training with respect to the other group. So it can be planned uh, differently. Um, for example, do a number of high intensity sessions, uh, which is limited in the number of sessions that you can do in a week. So still it will not be all the time until you sync your HRV because that would not make much sense. But still, um, you could add sessions as well um, if you use a slightly different protocol, even though I would say the most commonly used protocols are the ones that you mentioned where the goal is to have a certain um, plan. And then when the data does not look good either way, so either below or above baseline, so any abnormality, but not baseline, any either below or above normal range, then uh, if you have any abnormality, you would reduce the intensity. I think that's what has been used um, more. Uh, and um, yeah, one of the approaches that I think just makes more sense, even if we just look at you know things from a common sense point of view, because yeah. there is already a lot of stress on the body, and then maybe want to adjust something there. Yeah. Um, one follow-up on that. I don't think the studies have 
done anything like this but in the case of athletes that are doing long training sessions let's say triathletes and cyclists doing long rides for example if you're training for an ironman and you have a five-hour ride plan even if it's not intense it is a big stress on the body comparable or even tougher than a shorter intense session so what is do you have any practical tips would would the would the right thing to do in that case if you're using an hrv guided approach perhaps be to shorten a session like that as well or or are we only talking about changes in intensity so um i went back and forth even with my thinking with this and my current thinking is that the intensity is really the problem so to speak because the intensity causes an enormous series of disruptions in the body and the duration, obviously, there is a limit also to duration. And with the sports we do or um, yeah, or we talk about from triathlon to ultra running, the duration can also be absurd sometimes in terms of how long it is. Um, so that needs to be factored in. Uh, I think, again, sometimes we should just use common sense, meaning that you have a suppression um, and then you go out for something that is low intensity and then you see how you feel. And then you know that there was already some level of stress on the body. But if the low intensity, you feel good, your heart rate is where it should be, then I think it's fine also to do a long session. I've done this plenty of time myself. Um, also because for us that are not professionals, we always need to deal also with real life, right? So maybe it's Sunday and you've got a low score. Uh, but, you know, Monday you cannot do six hours. So it's going to be Sunday anyway. Uh, and you can make some changes uh, and removing the intensity for me is where we should really be flexible because you think you're going to do that workout that is going to lead to some changes and positive adaptations. But then what the research shows uh, is that if you're not in that state in which you can assimilate that uh, stimulus, then it doesn't make much sense because you're not going to get better. But for the low intensity exercise, um, again, always related to what's your normal, right? So if you train every day, uh, then I think it's totally fine to do low intensity exercise. If you train three times per week and you're new to exercising or you're picking up something new, then in that case, maybe it's different. Maybe you do very little or you skip that day. So everything always relative to, to our normal. But I'm inclined to say that the low intensity uh, causes much uh, less disruptions in terms of autonomic activity. And we see this also a bit in uh, some of the studies that look at HIV before and after exercise. They did not look at something as long as what you mentioned, but still, if you look at very low intensity exercise of one hour or of two hours, the response is extremely similar. And it's uh, always a lot better than a very short high-intensity session where the response takes forever to restabilize. So I think the intensity is really the aspect that we should manage uh, using these tools more than the duration. Right, yeah. So so what is now the current uh, state of the evidence with, with the studies that are out there on using HRV-guided training? I think it's been more or less the same that it was in the previous years, meaning that we have a couple more studies uh, looking at either performance or uh, um, other uh, submaximal testing uh, that you can do in the lab, you know, even just, um, yeah, heart rate at a certain power, the typical things we look at in terms of uh, proxies of performance, uh, typically showing that when we use HRV-guided training, 
these are either the same of the other group or slightly improved. And that normally is because of um, the timing of the stressor, which means that uh, we do not stress the body when the body is already in a negative stress response state. Um, and that leads to, um, again, either a better outcome or similar outcome uh, outcomes. And uh, yeah, in my view, that's uh, important because, again, we have these studies isolate training, but there is always so many other stresses. And, you know, these studies are short while things happen for, you know, much longer times when we prepare a race or an event. And then we do things that, again, are not factored in here, like traveling to places and adding other stresses. So if we can, uh, yeah, obtain the same results or better results without some of the sessions that basically add stress that is not uh, well uh, assimilated by the body, then uh, that is something that uh, we should explore further. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I think there was a meta-analysis actually already on, on this topic and it showed yeah, a small or moderate effect size on positive effect size for using HRV-guided training. Um, so as you say, well, for most athletes that are not professional, uh, the, the real world is, is also a, a constraint. So I guess you would be a perfect example of that. I'm, your HV for training and all your other uh, responsibilities keep you very busy, I'm sure. So can you give an example of how you're using HRV to inform and adjust your training, uh, if there is anything more to it than just checking and reducing it, removing intensity when you're below your or above your normal values? Yeah, yeah, sure. So for me, um, as someone that, as you say, is let's say, busier with work than with training. Um, even though I train daily still, you know, the training is not um, how I eat. <laughs> work is how I eat, right? So that's the priority. Um, and also, I would say, where I need to perform in a way, right? Because that's where I, I need to, uh, yeah, to do what I do. Um, then I see in the data that the relationship with work stress for me is often stronger than the relationship with training, for example. Uh, or similarly, that health is much more predominant in the data. For example, if I have periods um, in which mentally I'm not in a good place, or maybe it's spring and I have allergies and I have headaches, this happens to me almost every year. So a couple of weeks of frequent headaches when I wake up in the morning and the data is always looking pretty bad and the way i came to use it is you know it's not even um frustrating i would say anymore which may be the first thought when for many people when the data keeps uh telling you so to speak to go easy for not for a day but for weeks because maybe your health is not great it's just to simply embrace that <laughs> a bit more and try to uh basically work with what you have in that moment is just uh, being a bit more aware of the current state of your body. And then again, instead of always trying to perform the way we would like to perform in an ideal world, we do what we can on a given day based on everything that is happening from a health and performance and stress point of view. So embracing that a bit more, which means just getting out doing a lot of easy training and then uh, using the better days for uh, some intensity if um, you know everything uh, looks in the right place. So that's typically how I end up using the data. 
um, trying to get to a place where um, the consistency of the day-to-day scores is better. So I think that more than higher scores, I think stability is something that I try to um, uh, obtain by managing stress in a way that the data would reflect that um, in the medium or short term so that then uh, you can get also a bit more consistent with maybe higher intensity workouts and things like that which becomes more difficult is if you don't have that type of stability and let's say um, lower day-to-day jumps in your HRV uh, that you can easily see uh, in the data. And then in terms of the intensity, yeah, um, not going hard when the data is suppressed is maybe the one thing. It doesn't require me, I must say, much extra work since my workouts are still very unfrequent. So for me, the changes are minimal. Um, And then, yeah, managing the intensity in response to whatever is um, showing in the data in terms of health, um, performance and stress and all of that. Mm, yeah no that's those are some great points that you raised there and I, I guess one of the most important ones that stand out to me is just that mindset shift almost or not shift but yeah having the right mindset around it that you're not missing out you're optimizing for the context of life really yeah exactly i think that's important uh, we have all these tools and everything is providing advice or showing data and the way we respond to the data uh, is something that I think is talked about a bit more now, but will be even more in the future, like how do you perform based on what you see, uh, how that impacts everything else that you do. I think we need to think that through a bit more and uh, see how that impacts day-to-day life. I think it's also a process. Like m- most people, when they see lower scores, they are a bit frustrated or annoyed. And I think, it's a process maybe also to try to understand and learn that and again simply work with what you have on a given day and that in the longer term uh, we can make gains that way yeah yeah so let's start to wrap up here uh do you want to try to sum up today's discussion into one to three practical take-home messages for <laughs> the listeners what would be the most important things to to remember from this discussion um so I would say if you decide to measure your resting physiology, use a valid tool, um, which can be one of many at this point, either for the morning or the night. Uh, do that consistently over time so that you can get um, good data and then try to relate that to the different stressors that you face. Um, pay attention, don't make changes for several weeks or even months. Just look at how your own physiology corresponds to, again, different amounts of alcohol, for example, or when you got sick or um, training of different intensities and all of that. HRV becomes useful in that context. So uh, try to look into that. And then if you see uh, that the data is helping you in terms of awareness and management of these stressors, then in terms of making adjustments, Uh, The simplest would be to try to be more flexible in terms of your workouts and the high-intensity sessions and try to um, basically do those when your body is in a better physiological state, which should be, by the way, all the time. You should almost all the time be within your normal range. The changes should be minimal. 
Um, yeah, maybe we didn't talk that much about that, but I think it's important that you know a lower score on a given day does not mean that your HRV is suppressed. It has to be really below what is your normal range. So you need to use a tool that allows you to see this because all these tools that provide random scores or just the data that do not allow you to see if today the suppression is meaningful or significant or if it is just day-to-day variability. I think that's an important point um, to consider. And some of the tools out there allow you to see that uh, like the ones we make. Yeah, yeah, it's it, that's really important, and and these are the normal ranges that we're talking about are yeah. based on statistically valid and uh, accepted in literature ways of of calculating these ranges based on smallest square file change. So, exactly. so yeah, that's that's very important. Um, great, and uh, one general question: uh, What's one thing that you're currently learning about, or curious about, or fascinated by, and why? So staying on the HRV topic, uh, right now I've been experimenting a lot more with uh, measurements before and after training based on some research that uh, Steven Seiler did actually 15 years ago. And there hasn't been so much follow-up, but that's also why I mentioned earlier that you don't have that of a large disruption when you go, for example, from one hour to two hours of training if you keep the intensity low. So those things are captured that way. Because that way you isolate training, so you don't look. Uh, so normally we measure in the morning or in the night because we want to look at the big picture. But if you want to look just specifically at training, and um, I think then it can be interesting to measure before and after. And after means also at different time points. Maybe after, right after, after five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, and see how your HRV resting heart rate bounce back to pre-training value, if they do. Uh, or even if they get, um, interestingly, your HRV can be even higher than pre-training, just right after training, if the intensity of the training is low. That was unexpected to me. I always thought that, you know, you train, it's a stressor. It's going to take a while to get back to what where you were before. And working with this data 10 years, never I thought that an easy training would increase your HRV acutely right after. Uh, but that's what the data shows, and I did some tests also myself seeing the same. So I find that quite interesting to see, um, yeah, what kind of intensities would trigger those changes, what kind of intensities, you know, above or below aerobic threshold, if you want to call it that way, what kind of changes there would trigger uh, suppressions or longer recoveries, um, and how we can use maybe that information to. Uh, slightly change or adapt a bit the intensity of the workout itself so that's something i've been reading a bit more about and experimenting with and uh yeah hopefully we'll do some studies uh on this uh the next year so that we can also learn a bit more Mm, that's really interesting looking forward to seeing seeing what comes out of that so let's uh, move into the rapid fire question so take one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports so i'm uh, given the recent interest in ultra running i will go with uh, jason coop's book which is i think training essentials for ultra running um, which I had bought twice, actually, because when I was living in the States, um, then I moved back to Europe and I had to leave there my books. And then I bought it again here um, for the Kindle. And now there is a new edition 
So I just ordered that. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's a good resource <laughs> for ultra running. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Jason Coop uh, is a great, great guy, past guest on the show as well. Uh, and what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? So I'll, um, I think mostly is putting in the work. Um, I would say more professionally, athletically. I mean, I haven't uh, gotten very far, but uh, professionally, I would say, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever been, I've ever been, you know, particularly clever or anything. It's always been doing the work and you know, studying and being interested and intrinsically motivated, and then um, yeah, trying to build on what I was learning. So that has always been maybe there and is still there. So I think it's important. Mm. And uh, finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? <laughs> so I would say I don't have anyone in particular, but that does not mean there is no one. It's actually many people. Uh, what I mean is, you know, anyone that is doing good work, um, but as also strong ethics. I think that's someone I look up to. Um, and, you know, the world we live in puts certain values first that might not be very well aligned with what I think or the way we do our business, for example. Uh, so anyone that is also putting, you know, ethic, ethics and integrity before other things in their work and the way they operate and in life, I think that's something um, or someone I would I look up to um, and also the kind of way we try to do things here. Fantastic. And finally, where can people follow you and follow HRV for training? What are the best places? There are quite a few. So you tell us the best ones. Yeah. So I will stick to Twitter, which uh, I, yeah, I just made a recent comeback. So now I use that fair amount and uh, that's uh, at Altini underscore Marco. So last name underscore first name. And that's yeah, typically the easiest way uh, to interact with me uh, with all of these things. HRV for Training has a website, which is hrvfortraining.com. Uh, I do have ones as well, markoltier.com, yeah. but uh, it's typically easier on Twitter. And I'll highlight your your blogs. You you write on, on Medium usually. Because yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. there's plenty of content there on, uh, yeah. on things HRV. Yeah, yeah, lots of good stuff there for people that want to dig deeper. All right, well, thank you so much, uh, Marco. It's been great to have this chat uh, again, and thank you for for sharing all of your knowledge. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to marco's personal website and blog as well as his social media and research gate and also the hrv for training website and social media of course we'll link to marco's previous appearance on the podcast back in episode 144 and to the paper that we discussed what is behind changes in resting heart rate and heart rate variability a large-scale analysis of longitudinal measurements acquired in free living it is available in full for free so check that out the link will be in the show notes and if there are any other papers that we talk about i will add them or try to add them in the uh, in the links as well if you're looking for training plans or coaching services to take your triathlon to the next level, uh, I'm going to share a stat to show how seriously we take the quality of the coaching that we do at Scientific Triathlon. We recently ran a feedback survey among all of our coached athletes, and one of the questions that we asked was a classic net promoter score question, which is how likely are you to recommend uh, our coaching to a friend? 
the athletes rate that question or their answer to the question on a scale from one to ten and uh, the average answer was a nine point or the average rating was a nine point point four so clearly our athletes are very very satisfied uh, i think the minimum uh rating that we got was an eight so if you want to get really high quality coaching then i think that we are a really good uh, alternative get in touch if you want to learn more about that Next Monday, I'll be back with another podcast episode. I haven't quite decided which one to publish, but it will be something interesting, I am sure. So stay tuned, stay subscribed. And finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.